Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side by side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Let me read for you a passage of Scripture that is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, and before I get through, I think you'll understand why. There are a number of reasons, but uh, this one is particularly precious to me. It's in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, and it's the story of Luke's account of Jesus' presentation in the temple for both his circumcision and also for Mary's purification. Beginning with verse 21 of chapter 2 of Luke. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the, the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. About a year ago, I got an invitation from the Cove over here out of Asheville, and they asked me if I would come uh, and speak for one of their retreats. And they said, we want you to talk about First and Second Chronicles and about Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, so uh, I thought a little, and I said, yeah, I'll do that. Now, out of all the segments, the sections of Old Testament history, I probably, I'm, I'm sure I knew less about that section than any other. So I thought this will make me learn some things that uh, I don't know. But you know, it's an interesting consignment when you have, uh, you're together for really about two days and you have four hours and you've got 88 chapters of Bible to cover. <laughs> Maybe if I'd thought about it a little closer, I'd have, I'd have shied away from it a little bit. But in Chronicles and in Ezra and Nehemiah, you like one chapter of having as many chapters as there are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all put together. And uh, more than that, you've got uh, 
the history that runs from the creation of the world to 500 B.C. And so uh, it's, it's an amazing swap. So I started looking at it, and as I looked at it, it got more and more interesting to me. Now, I'd never been particularly blessed by First and Second Chronicles, because if you remember, First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of personal names. Noah, uh, let's see, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalal, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's all you get for nine solid chapters. There's one brief story about Jabez. It's about three verses long that has a little personal in it. Everything else is nothing but straight names. If you're reading three chapters in the Bible a day to get through every year, uh, <laughs> the week you hit, hit Chronicles is sort of a rough week. So there's not much there the first three days to help you, and when you get a little farther in, you find there are more of these lists. And when you get to about chapter 23, there are five more solid chapters in which you simply have the names of the fellows who were in... Uh, David's army and who were a part of David's court. So it's not exactly inspirational. So uh, that's what I noticed as I began to deal with it. But as I dealt with it, it got more interesting and more significant because what he obviously is dealing with is giving you a historical perspective, a biblical perspective on history because he runs from Adam to the, to the fall of the tabernacle, a uh, fall of the temple, and to the carrying of uh, the Jews into Babylonian captivity, and then to their return after that under the reign of Cyrus. So what he's giving you is a spread of human history. Now, one of the things I love is it was written by a Jew probably somewhere around 400 B.C., and that was a period when there was no longer a king in Israel. There was no longer a nation of Jews. They lost their nationhood. The Jews, were, the question was whether they were going to survive. They were scattered and they were lost in, a, in the largest empire and the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Now, you know, when a people like that has that kind of thing happen, they either fade into the rest of mankind or they get very defensive. Now, if you'll think about Jews, Jewishness really started in this period. And you know enough about Jews to know it's pretty hard to assimilate them. It's interesting that uh, no, the world's never been able to assimilate the Jews uh, to this day. A fellow was telling me who was at a meeting in 1964 in New York City with Jews, mostly wealthy Jews in the United States and uh, in New York City and from across the country, and David Ben-Gurion, the father of the, uh, you know, the Israeli nation of Israel, had been brought in to speak. They thought he came to raise money for them, to raise money for Israel. And he did want some of that. But when he stood up to speak, he began with a very incriminating tone saying, what are you doing in New York? You belong in Israel and don't send your money in your place. If you're a Jew, you belong, you belong to be on the land. <laughs> now, uh, I spent three years at Brandeis and Jews are different. I remember the uh, rabbinic student that I studied with, and uh, uh, he was. Uh, he said to me, he said, we got to know each other to some extent. I found out he smoked six packs of cigarettes, uh, and he smoked six days a week. 
never smoked on Saturday. On Saturday. I said, uh, you don't smoke on the Sabbath? He said, oh, no. I said, do you think it's a sin to smoke? Oh, no. He said, or wouldn't smoke the other six days. I said, uh, well, why don't you smoke on the Sabbath? Well, he said, the law, Moses' law, says you're not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. And I haven't found a way to smoke one without carrying it. So he smoked six days a week. Sunset on Friday, he quit. He didn't start again until Saturday at sunset. His whole life was built around the word, the law of Moses, and he was different from other people. I had a friend who, he was a uh, professor, and he was sitting talking with a Jewish professor at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, my friend had a hamburger in front of him. And uh, he had a glass of milk. And so he got he knew this Jewish professor real well, and he said, finally one day he said to him, you know, uh, this... Uh, I'm aware this is counter to uh, to rabbinic law and to Moses' law because, you know, in the Pentateuch it says you're not supposed to boil a kid in his mother's milk. And out of that, the Jews developed the idea that you should never mix meat and milk. And so uh, a good Orthodox Jew's family has two sets of dishes, one that you use milk in and one that you don't use milk in. So my friend, the Protestant, looked at this Jewish professor, Ph.D., and said... Uh, do you hold to that? Oh, yes, he said. Well, he said, well, how do you feel about sitting across the table from me while I eat a hamburger and drink a glass of milk? Well, he says, it nauseates me. <laughs> now, that Jewishness runs real deep. They've determined not to be assimilated. It started all back here. And the guy who wrote Chronicles was a Jew, and a Jewish Jew, a Jew of all Jews. But you know the interesting thing is? He doesn't start history with Abraham. And he hardly tips his hat to Moses. <laughs> he starts history with Noah. And I mean, he starts history with Adam. So you get Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. He starts with Adam. Because you see, the God of Israel is not the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the only God there is. So he's a God of Gentiles as much as he is a Jew. Now Jews tend to forget that sometimes, but the guy who wrote Chronicles didn't. He says, the God that I worship is the God of all men. So he started with Adam and is dealing with the whole human race. Now it's something very interesting I really had never noticed. When he gets to Noah, he says the sons of Noah were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now you know that Shem is the father of the Semites. And so we speak of Jews as Semites, descendants of Shem. Uh, and then you get Ham and Japheth. We're descendants of Japheth. Well, when he goes to list the descendants of, the Japheth, of Japheth and the descendants of Ham and the descendants of Shem, he lists the Japhethites first. He doesn't list the, Shem, the Semites first. He lists the Hamites second. And he puts the Semites, he put the Jews last, the stream from which the Jews come. When you get to uh, the family of Abraham, what you and I tend to forget is that Abraham had three, practically had three wives, not one. For the Jew, Sarah is the significant one. But you'll remember Hagar gave him Ishmael. And when Sarah died, he had Keturah. And Keturah gave him a number of sons. 
When the writer of the book of Chronicles lists the descendants of Abraham, he starts with Hagar and Ishmael, not with, not with Sarah and uh, Isaac. And then he goes to Keturah, not to Sarah, and he names Sarah last of all and her descendants. So that what he is saying in no uncertain terms in those dry lists of names, he is saying what I'm talking about is universal history, not the history of the Jewish people. I'm talking about the whole shooting match because the God that we worship is the God who created the whole thing and he is God and God alone over it all. It's interesting that as you go through, uh, when he gets to uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, he lists Esau before he lists Jacob, who gives us the name Israel. So there is this careful selection in the names to show that what he's talking about is universal history. Now, you know, it's sort of hard to think of biblical religion without it being missionary-minded, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have to go to the Great Commission in the tail end of Matthew to talk about missions. I can take the, the name, these dry, dull, boring names, list of names in the book of Chronicles and preach on missions because what God is after is the whole world. He's not after a part of the world. He's after the whole shooting match. So you get that universal character to it. Now, one of the things that interests me is how do you get a Jew when he's on the defensive? Do you think Jews walking into the gas chambers under Hitler were worrying about Gentiles? They were hating them. <laughs> now what you get here is a guy who breaks out of that kind of mold. Now that's why I love that story from Luke about the uh, circumcision of Jesus and then the purification of Mary and Jesus. When they came into the temple, you'll remember Simeon was there and Simeon looked and said, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace from mine eyes have seen your salvation. I was in a conversation one day eating lunch with Harold Lenzel, who at one time was the editor of Christianity Today, uh, a Baptist leader in this country and really a great guy. And in the course of it, he, we got to talking. These are the kind of conversations you like. Uh, he says... Uh, Dennis, let me tell you what I found in the Bible the other day. And so you know you're going to get something fresh out of the guy. He said, I, in my Bible, I read five pages every day. If I read five pages every day, I finish the Bible the 10th of December every year. And that gives me three weeks to do what I please. I'd finished reading the Bible through, and I was doing what I please, so I read the Christmas story. And I read about Simeon. And he said, you know, it's a fascinating story. He said, it says about Simeon that the Spirit of God rested on him. He said, isn't it interesting when you identify a guy by the fact that the Spirit of God rests on him? You say, well, one guy is red-headed, another guy is bald, another guy is short, and another one is fat. And you say about another one, the Spirit of God rests on him. He said, Ken Law, he said, you identify a person by something that's unique about him. He said, uh, if I were to tell you there's a guy in that room over there that uh, in that banquet hall that I want you to get from me, there are 120 men in there, but you won't have any trouble finding them because he got a big wart right on the end of his nose. This is one of the reasons I like Harold Enzel. He said, and you go in that room and you find there are 120 men in there with a big wart right on the end of his nose, you got a problem. <laughs> but he said, you identify a person by what makes him different. So Simeon was different. The Spirit of God rested on him. Now he said, what difference did it make? 
One of the things it says is, and the Spirit led him into the temple. He was led. He said, you know, the thing I notice is that the Spirit of God rests on a person. He's where he belongs at the right time. He said, what if he'd come in an hour early? Or what if he'd come in an hour later? He would have missed the greatest event in human history. He would have missed the very thing he was living for because he was one of those who was living for the coming of Christ. So he said, he was there at the right time in the right place to see. And when he came in, saw Mary and Joseph, there was something within. So he says, the Spirit of God not only sees to it if you walk with him and live close to him, that you're where you belong at the right time. He says, he helps you see things other people can't see. (laughs) Because he said there were people all around uh, Simeon who looked and said, isn't that an interesting little peasant couple that's come in here? Uh, (laughs) That guy's older than she is. He's got a young wife and they got a baby. And they're not very well off, are they? Because they were given, what, two pigeons. They couldn't afford a lamb. You know, I'm glad for that. Aren't you glad that Mary and Joseph weren't rich? (laughs) That would have disassociated Jesus from all the poor people in the world. And so they said, look at that couple. Not very affluent. But that's a good-looking, nice-looking baby, isn't it? Simeon looked and said, for heaven's sakes, this is what the creation is all about. (laughs) This is why God ever created Adam in the first place. (laughs) Everything in human history is pointed up to this. This is the most important moment in human history, and I see it. Mine eyes have seen your salvation. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the hope of my people Israel. Now, how under the sun does a guy get to the place where he breaks out of those obscurantisms <laughs> and narrowness that Aaron was talking about earlier? The interesting thing is the mark of the Holy Spirit is that he explodes your horizons. He doesn't narrow your horizons. He explodes your horizons. And he opens you to where you can see more than you will ever be able to see. And you get out of your opinionatedness. The one mark of the person on whom the Holy Spirit rests is a humility that has him wide open. You know, it's interesting to live in an academic world. And there are times when I think the most dangerous thing in the world is a 28-year-old PhD. Because, you know, there's some of us who get it all inverted. And so we begin to learn and we begin to learn and we think that we, man, we look at what we've learned. We look at what we've learned and we're sort of at the top of a pinnacle. But you know, the reality is, if you've got an intellectual problem, what I notice is every time I get an answer to a question I've had, I've got 10 more questions. So education is the explosion of ignorance, not the mastery of knowledge. Now, that to me is a mark of the Holy Spirit. That as he leads you, you say, for heaven's sake, look, look, look what he's let me say, but look at the questions I've got left. And I thank God that he keeps you with questions. He keeps expla- exploding your questions. But there is that learning, you know, that you say, for heaven's sake, now I've got ten more challenges, this kind of thing. Okay, that was the mark of the Spirit resting on, uh, on Simeon. But uh, the... Uh, uh, Best thing is, he says, he is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the hope of my people Israel. And old Harold Lindsdale said, Kinlaw, 
wonder how many Jews there were that were worrying about the Gentiles in Jerusalem. They were worrying about the Jews. But here is a man in the temple who is concerned about the, the Gentiles. Now, the fact that he was in the temple makes it all the more significant because do you know what Simeon passed when he walked into the temple? The archaeologists now tell us he walked past 16 stones that said any Gentile who enters these courts shall promptly be stoned to death. <laughs> and here's a man who's standing in the middle of this circle of stones that says no Gentile can come in here. And he's saying, how can we get the Gentiles in here? <laughs> Uh, you will remember why Paul was arrested? He was arrested on a false charge. And he was killed because he was arrested on that false charge. You know what the Jews charged him with? They said he brought a Gentile into the temple courts where Simeon was. And because he brought a Gentile in, he was to be killed. And they were ready to kill him. If it hadn't been Roman soldiers, they'd have killed him immediately. But he was saved by the Roman soldiers and ultimately died under Caesar in Rome. Because he was supposed to have brought a Now, he didn't. It was a Jew he had in there, but, but the, the, his enemy said it's a Gentile. Now, here in the middle of this racial narrowness is a guy who says, how can we get all the Gentiles into, the, into this, these holy precincts to know the true and the living God? I don't know about you, but I like that. <laughs> and I'm glad of, I'm part of something that's bigger than us. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't sit around saying look at us and who we are but you say look at a world that needs to be brought to the one whom we know now when I got to that point I began to sort of like Chronicles <laughs> uh, okay now it's a universal history it is not a particularistic history but when you get into it it's interesting most of the scholars think it is a particularistic history because it's amazing what he doesn't tell you about. He doesn't tell you a thing about the garden. <laughs> he doesn't even tell you anything about the creation. He doesn't tell you a thing about Noah and the flood. He doesn't tell you a thing about uh, Abraham. <laughs> Can you feature a, a Jewish history that doesn't mention Abraham? He doesn't tell you about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. And he doesn't even tell you about Moses. He doesn't even tell you about Sinai and the law. What you get is nine chapters of names that run you from Noah to Saul. And the first time you get a person described is with Saul. Now, and, you, and Saul gets all of one chapter. And it's almost as much as the chronicler says, he's on, he's on the stage and I've got to deal with him, but my, I want to get past him as quickly as I can. And then with chapter 11, he begins the story of David. And then... You get the story of David and Solomon, and it runs 27, 28 chapters on David and Solomon. And after Solomon, who died about 931, you've got the 831, the 731, the 631, that's 300 years, to 6 to 538. That lacks, uh, what is it, seven years of being 400 years. You've got, uh, you got 28 chapters about David and Solomon. You've got 27 chapters about 493 years. <laughs> he has a special interest in telling this historical story. 
Now, when he tells about David and Solomon, um, it's very interesting what he tells about David and Solomon and what he doesn't tell about David and Solomon. He uh, doesn't tell you about David and Goliath. He doesn't tell you about David and Saul and Saul's uh, attempts to kill him and how David had to flee from him. He leaves out most of the personal things about David, but you know what he says about David? He says David wanted to build a temple for the living God. And Nathan came to him and said, no, David, you can't do that. Your son will have to do that. And do you know all of the stories about Solomon? The main thing it says that he did, it says that he built the temple. So the heart of Chronicles gives you what? It gets David on the throne and anointed, and it gets the temple built so that God can dwell in the midst of his people. And if you were to ask the Chronicles, he'd say, you know, that's what the story is all about how to get God in the middle of his people <laughs> and how to get a clue as to what is to come. So that the whole thrust, what a fascinating philosophy of history, that the philosophy of history isn't explained in terms of economics, it isn't explained in terms of military things, it isn't explained, military mind, it isn't explained in terms of political factors, it is explained in terms of the fact that God wants to live in the middle of his people and wants them to worship him. Now that, to me, is a fascinating philosophy of history. That's what the creation is all about. Now, uh, it's interesting uh, that as he tells that, uh, and it's, it's interesting to read the commentaries, modern commentaries, and how critical they are of the chronicle. <laughs> and the more I read them, the more I laugh. <laughs> now, that may be obscurantism on my part, but uh, the chronicler will tell the story and he'll say, the king got sick and chronicle say, yeah, God did it. <laughs> he'll say, the king won a battle and he'll say, yeah, God did it. <laughs> he'll say, the king lost a battle and he'll say, God did it. And the scholars, you know, they scoff at this. But you know all that the chronicler is saying? From my language, all he's saying is, God exists. <laughs> And he's an actor on the stage of history. And he's an actor on the stage of your life and mine. And if he's an actor in the play, we ought to recognize his presence and we ought to count on him and we ought to relate to him. So what you've got in the Chronicle is an account of history where God is, is one of the actors. And the Chronicle says, by the way, he's the, he's the main one because he's the one that began it all and he's the one that's going to end it all and he's the one who's in sovereign control because he's without rival or competitor while he works. There's nobody to compete with him. He's the main one here, so you ought to count him in when you tell the story. Now, uh, I've come to the place where I like that. Now, uh, you know, I've come, see if you hear what I'm saying here. I've become convinced that there is something to be seen in history that is as that is as important as what is to be seen in a sense in Revelation, that you've got three witnesses to God. One of them is the scripture, one of them is the creation itself, and one of them is human history. Now, uh, we, we don't have time to develop all of those, but uh, I'm convinced that when, when we meet God, God's going to look at us and say, how under the sun did you miss it? <laughs> there were evidences everywhere as to what I was about. You never see them in the evening news. New York Times doesn't know about them. You know, I wondered for a long time how God could get a witness in the New York Times. 
And then one day I realized there was one every day on the second line on the front page. Because every story that the New York Times, with all its hostility to Christianity, every story it's ever reported is dated in terms of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus. And these people so hostile to Christ when they say, well, Christ, I think he's just going to look at him and say, how'd you miss it? There were a thousand witnesses in your life. Now, that's what the chronicler is saying. God is in history, and he's saying something in history. Now, what's, what's the kind of thing he's saying? I'm convinced that God is the, is the world's great third-grade school teacher, and he is the absolute master of the object lesson. And it may be just a strange thing going on to you, but if you have eyes to see, it is something that points explicitly to Jesus Christ. Because if what this guy is saying is that all of history is to get David on his throne and the Davidic line established and to get the temple built so God is dwelling in the midst of his people, is what he's saying, I'm getting you ready for Christ? Now see if you can follow me here. I'm not sure I would have. But... uh you know, it's amazing what I never saw. Turn with me, if you will, to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. I was past 65 before this thought ever crossed my head. Do you know how many times I've read the Gospel of John? <laughs> I started reading the Gospel of John when I was 13. <laughs> and if you say 65, that meant 52 years. And it may have been 70 when I first saw this. Uh, I remember when I was converted, a lady gave me a little red uh, paperback Gospel of John. I stuck it in my pocket. I was 13. I was a high school freshman. I carried it everywhere with me. It was very precious to me. It, the paper was, uh, it was had paper, paperback, and it, the red ink was such that when I sweated, the ink would run. One day my mother said to me, why are those red circles on your shirt? I was scared to tell her because I was scared to tell her. She'd tell me I couldn't carry my, my, my Gospel of John. I started reading the Gospel of John when I was 13. Now, look at, look at this, the cleansing of the temple. Verse 13 of John 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that his written zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, that's a fascinating story. The thing I never knew what to do with was when Jesus said, pull the temple down in three days, I'll build it back to show you that I have a right to cleanse this temple. That was a total enigma to me. But now look at the context, the occasion. There is a sense in which if the chronicler brings everything up to his day, this is the high point of human history. I'm convinced that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was no surprise to God. Because God doesn't have any surprises. Which means that he knew the full cost of his creation of our sin when he created Adam and Eve. He knew what was going to happen. 
Now that means that when he created Adam and Eve, he knew it was going to cost him his son on a cross, which puts an incredible value on a human being. That God looks at all the tragedy of human history and says it was worth it to create a person, a human being. When he created Adam, he must have thought, you know, I better make him big because one of these days I'm going to have to inhabit one of these creatures. So when he made Adam, he made man so God can be incarnatable. There's nobody in the world that has that exalted view of a human being. You know, you can treat the unborn fetus as a clump of cells if you want to. But what you're dealing with is something that has the potential to be incarnated by God. So I don't have any question that when God created the first Adam, he had the second Adam in mind. He said, i got to make the first Adam so I can create the second Adam to cure the problems of the first Adam. Which means that everything in human history was pointing toward Bethlehem. And now Bethlehem has come. And the Messiah has come to his city. And where does he go? He comes to the temple. Now what's the climax of, of Chronicles? It's the king on his throne. And the temple, the house of God. And now, 400 years later, you've got the king coming to that house. And he walks in and says, We need to correct a few things here. <laughs> You know, he took some cords and bound them into a whip and he drove the animals out. And he turned to the fellows who owned the pigeons and the doves and had them in cages and said, get them out of here because if you don't, I'll turn them loose and you won't get your property back. I used to think that he was angry when he drove the animals out. I don't believe that anymore. I think he was angry when he kicked the tables of the money changers over because they were profiting but you see, up to that point, sheep and lambs and goats and cattle belonged in the temple courts because they were the sacrificial means of expressing the fact that we want our sins forgiven. And so it was appropriate that they be there. So I don't think he was driving them out in anger, but I think what, you remember what happened in the first chapter of John? They came down to the uh, Jordan River and looked at John the Baptist and said, are you the one we're looking for? And he said, heaven, no. <laughs> they said, well, then who are you? He said, I'm the one to identify the one you're looking for. And he, they said, uh, well, who is the one we're looking for? He said, he's out there in the crowd. That must have raised their blood pressure level a little. And then they said, well, where is he? And they said, there he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you know every lamb that had ever been slain on a Jewish altar was a promise that Jesus would come? Well, now that he's come, what are you going to do with lambs? When you got the real lamb, you don't need to symbol lamb. So he says, boys, we can get rid of these because I'm here. I'm the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. They say... What right do you have to drive these animals out? He says, pull the temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, what's he saying? You see, the same way that that Passover lamb was a prophecy of Christ, 
Solomon's temple is a prophecy of the incarnation. That God wants to dwell in space and time and in the material world with us. And the temple is simply a promise of Mary, that fetus in her womb, and that baby that, that, that Simeon is uh, rejoicing in, and that one who in his body on the tree took our sins away. It's interesting, it is not in, I cannot find that it is exclusively in the deity of Christ that the atonement takes place. You read Paul and it says it's in his flesh, in his body. It is when God becomes man that the atonement is made. So what you have in Chronicles, this is incredible perspective that all of human history is pointing toward the king with his people so that all of history can be explained in one word, Emmanuel. <laughs> now, just to, to, to cap it, turn away to the book of Revelation. Let me back up and say there, there are four main things in, in, in Chronicles. One of them is the land. The Jews now are dwelling in the land, the land of promise. The second is they now have the holy city, Jerusalem. And it's interesting that when uh, David is the one who captures Jerusalem, do you know that's the fulfillment of Joshua's conquest? <laughs> because Jebus, the city, was a stronghold. It was a Canaanite stronghold. It was the last Canaanite stronghold in Israel to fall. Who took it? David. So that what you've got in David when he captures what is to become the city of Jerusalem, what you get is the climax of the uh, conquest of Joshua. Well, now, what is that? That is the final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. They now own it. So they've got, they've got the city and they've got the land. And the other two things are the temple and the king. Now look at the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. What have you got? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. That's Emmanuel, isn't it? God with us. All of history pointing toward this. Now he says they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then I said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Now, look down at verse 9. One of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like a jasper, clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gate. 
On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, the fulfillment is linked with the Abrahamic promise and the, and the Sinaitic covenant. And uh, then you come on down. But look at verse 22. You now have the climax of human history, the ultimate end, when the and it is a city, and it is the new Jerusalem, so that all the Jerusalem that went before it was the symbol pointing to that new Jerusalem. All of history is prophetic. All of history uh, points beyond itself. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So when Jesus, when they looked at Jesus and said, what right do you have to do this? He said, destroy the symbol and I'll show you the reality. (laughs) I read that thing for 60 years, 50 years. I never saw it. Who is Christ? Every sanctuary you've ever seen is a promise of the incarnate God in flesh, one of us. Now, why does he want to do this? You'll never see the Father and you'll never see the Spirit because they're invisible. And God says, I like you. (laughs) I like you enough I want to be with you. And I know you're the kind that needs something palpable. (laughs) So I want to get where you can see me and touch me and feel me. And how does first, how does first John begin? That was, which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard and felt with our hands. God wants to get close to us. Now, why does he want to get so close? We don't have time to go into all of it, but very quickly, let me jam a lot of stuff. Do you notice what the metaphor of our relationship to him is here? Twenty-one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, if you go through this, you will find that the figure here of the relationship is a spousal relationship between the eternal Son of God and the church. You know what the last word in the Bible is? The Spirit and the Bride say come. And let him who hears say come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, we are to him as a bride. Now, how'd you like to have a bride you couldn't see? Or how'd you like to have a husband you couldn't see? I'd hate to have Elsa where I couldn't see her. She wouldn't take me if she couldn't see me. Do you know how much God loves us? That he wanted to come out of invisibility into visibility so we could know him the way we are. And all of human history points to that kind of wedding. You know, uh, it's interesting. The symbols in human history that point to eternal things. You know the one that has come to me as I read this? Elsie and I 
I heard Elsie give her testimony in a sophomore prayer meeting when I was in college. And uh, I liked what I heard. Uh, I liked it well enough that I said to myself, I'd like to know her better. So uh, I worked in a bakery at the college. And I went to work every morning at 5 o'clock. I got off at 8 o'clock. And at 8 o'clock they had chapel. And when I got through baking, I wasn't fit for chapel, so they let me skip chapel. I didn't have to go to chapel. I had to go home and shower and clean up before I could go to class. But I always had an hour in there. So the next morning after I'd seen Elsie and heard her give her testimony on uh, Monday night, on Tuesday morning, I had chapel at 8 o'clock. And at, nine, at 10 of 9, I was leaning against a radiator in the, mil, in, in the administration building in front of the post office boxes. Because <laughs> they put the mail up during chapel. I knew where she'd go as soon as chapel was over. She'd go where everybody else went. She'd go to her mailbox. And, you know, I can remember just as clearly as can be leaning against that radiator like I was a piece of the furniture. And sure enough, there she came in the door right in front of me and started toward me. And I tried to act as if I was as unconcerned as could be, looked the other way. But when she walked past me, I took a good look. She walked over a few steps and turned to the, to the box, to the mailboxes, bent over and opened her mailbox and took the mail out and walked on down the hall. And I can tell you still what she was wearing when she walked around the corner. Over the next three and a half years, I chased her. <laughs> took three and a half years. Wasn't easy. But I liked what I saw. And then uh, we got, we, we, she agreed to marry me. So we were married in Broadway Methodist Church in Schenectady, New York. It was during the war, and I drove as far as I had gas, and then got on a train and rode the rest of, and rode the, rest of the way to get there. And uh, my roommate in college uh, was my best man. The altar in that Methodist church was very close to the front pew. So I had to stand side of the altar, and Bill stood between me and the front pew as we waited, you know, for the... Uh, wedding party to come down and it was a tight enough fit and I was nervous enough that I can remember saying to Bill under my breath if you push me I'll go right over this altar <laughs> so I stood there apprehensive as sin and uh, watched the ladies who were in the her friends who the girls who were on the in the wedding party come forward and then suddenly I saw Sam Blake who was six foot three my father-in-law to be big rascal step into the doorway, and then he, I noticed he had following him on his left arm, Elsie. Man, I forgot about my roommate. I forgot about falling over the altar. I forgot about everything that was there, except her as she came walking down the aisle, waiting, waiting. Now, you know, the interesting thing is, let me put it this way. I did a commentary on the Song of Songs. The shock in the Song of Songs to me, there were two shocks in the Song of Songs to me. Uh, three. One of them is, it's not religious. There's no discussion of God. <laughs> you don't have to get religious when you talk about God's creation. This is my Father's world. <laughs> He's the context for the secular. 
And you can't deal with the secular without, uh, in, without cranking him in. So the guy who wrote it, he didn't think he needed to sanctify it in any way. He just needed to tell what was there. But that was one thing. The second thing that, that shocked me was there's no reference to, to children in the Song of Songs. And in that ancient world, the only reason for marriage in, from, in most people's minds was to perpetuate a family. Song of Songs says you don't need children to justify married love. Stands on its own feet, and God is pleased with it. But the third thing is, if he represents God and she represents us, then the speeches where we speak, where she speaks about him, ought to be much more ecstatic than where he speaks about us, or where he speaks about her. But the interesting thing is that in the Song of Songs, the longest speeches are where he speaks about her. The shorter speeches are where she speaks about him. The more poetic ones are where he speaks about her. The less poetic ones are where she speaks about him. So I thought, this can't be. Can it be that God likes me more than I like him? And that he gets more joy out of me than I get out of him? I'm the one who ought to be ecstatic about him. But the reality is, he likes me better than I like him. And he wants me. And he wants me to be in intimate relationship, an intimate fellowship with him. He loves me. And he chases me. He chased me a long time before he got here. So the figure is all here. But what's the purpose of human history? Is to get me into intimate. Look how intimate it is. Intimate association and fellowship with Christ. Now, let me, let me say something at that point. You know, at times I think in the United States, evangelicalism has made a serious mistake. We have, it seems, almost unwittingly tried to find out what the minimal requirement is for entrance into the family of God. And we've based our evangelism on finding the minimal requirement. So if we get people in there saved, and they can spend the rest of their lives looking back at the door they came through saying, I'm on the inside. <laughs> now, as I read this story, I find something very different. There is a minimal requirement for entrance into the family of God, into fellowship with God. But when you come in, you don't say, I'm wonderful, I'm in. You say, for heaven's sake, what a world has opened up. And how far can I go into this thing? How deep can I get into the love of God and in the knowledge of God? And you push to find everything you can find about the one. I didn't walk out after that night in Broadway Methodist Church and say, well, I got her now. I can go on my bet way. But I thought, wait a minute. I have the joy of coming to know a person who is God's gift to me to enrich my life and to fill my life with all sorts of pleasure and uh, blessing. Now, it's interesting. That's the perspective of human history. That's the biblical philosophy of history. It'd be interesting if the New York Times could catch on to that, wouldn't it? Or Dan Rather, or some of these other birds. And if we had eyes to see, we would see that's the way it is. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, that gives me hope. How many of you know the name Asher Banapal? Ezerhaddon, and uh, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. How many of you have any friends that are named Asherbanipal, or Artaxerxes, or Ahasuerus?
or Caesar. It was these people who were in on the secret of God and in on the mystery of God who were a part of the future. When I was younger, about in the 50s, I used to listen to Fulton J. Sheen, the first great radio preacher in this TV preacher in this country. And uh, I became interested in Sheen. I began to read some of his philosophical stuff because he was not only a great preacher, he was a philosopher. And he published a book called The Philosophy of Religion. In it, he had an expression that has, uh, I've never been the same since I got the concept. The Latin for it, and of course he is a Roman Catholic priest, used the Latin, the philosophia perennis, the perennial truth. The idea was that there is a truth that started with Abraham, that a line of truth that's gone down through human history, unbroken from the day God revealed himself to Abraham. He said, you know, it's a long line. And he said, as you look at history, it tends to wander all over the page. (laughs) Some generations and ages that seems to be way over on the right and some generations and ages way over on the left. Sometimes you can't even see it and you have to dig a while, but if you dig a while, you'll find it's there. But he said, if you get a long enough view, you'll find that line is straight as a die and it's human culture that wanders all over the map. So that if you take a Gallup poll and look for the center of where culture is, you may be a million miles away from that line. But he says the future is, the key to the future is in the middle of that line. You know, that saved me from worrying about Gallup polls. It's freedom, isn't it? And I've lived long enough to know that the Gallup poll today will be laughed at tomorrow. But if you're on what appears to be the absolute margin and people say, you're going to fall off the earth, you're so far on the margin. If you're in the middle of that line, you're where the future is being determined and you're part of it. Now, that's the beauty about walking with Christ and following I want to be in the middle of it. But now this final thing. What is the kind of relationship that is implied in a spousal relationship? You know, if you ask a typical American evangelical what it means to be born again, he'll tell you that's the way to get my soul saved so I don't have to go to hell. So I can get past the judgment. You notice the concentration on eyes, on I, pure self-centeredness. We're self-centered enough and sinful enough that God has to appeal to us on the basis of our sinfulness and our self-centeredness to get us even to pay attention to it. But when he gets us started, he wants to deliver us exactly from that and bring us to the place where we don't live for ourselves and we live for him and we live wholly for him. You know, I cannot think of anything that would be more tragic than for a guy to be standing at the altar ready to marry a girl, and as the preacher is reading the vows to him, he's thinking about another girl. Or to have the girl standing there next to the fella, and as the preacher's reading the vows, she's thinking about, should I have married that other guy? Do I have to give him up? You know, nobody's ready to be married until he's forsaken everybody except the one in front of them. 
See, the relationship here is a relationship that's total. <laughs> it's not partial. There's no dividedness in the heart, total. And it is uh, permanent. It's forever. And it is exclusive. And that's what God wants out of me. I believe that's what it means for a person to be among the holy ones. There's no longer any division. Christ is supreme. It's not conditional. It's forever. And it is exclusive. And that's what God wants out of me when I let him bring me to that point. There's a fellowship that the only thing comparable to it is the relationship of a man and a woman who are married in the will of God and living that way. That is the ultimate reality toward which God wants to move every person.